<laughs> You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of Us needs and appreciates all your support. Hungry for adventure? Then travel to a la carte, the charming land below the floating city of heavenly delight, and join the young cook ramen for her daily dose of wacky hijinks in the new series Delicious. With a cast of eccentric, strong female characters, this wonderfully illustrated comedy comic will be out in July, but you can pre-order now by clicking the banner on the page for this podcast. Get the limited hardcover first edition, plus free stickers and an art print as a gift. Wow, stickers! A perfect gift for your child, or those of you who are forever young at heart. One of us strongly recommends this one. all the time on these because i'm fucking musical is why you are you've got some real talent there and yeah. i can respect that yeah this is aaron and chris <laughs> coming at you from actually in the same room together in person i'm not at all suffering an anxiety attack from being out <laughs> which is to say he literally is he's in the same room but he's under a blanket <laughs> <laughs> i put up a little plastic sheet in between us just in case yeah he, he made a whole pillow for it there's a sign no other boys allowed <laughs> but yeah we're it's kind of nice if you're wondering why there's no video this week well that's why because yeah. we're just sitting in person in the future we might if we do these in person i might mike you know what let's set up the video camera but i'm not gonna do that this i week. totally just did finger guns at the imaginary video camera hey Yo, who loves you baby <laughs> but we have a lot of stuff to talk about this week with our home releases. Boy, there was a shit ton of stuff that yeah, came out. Uh, that that I, when I handed you the stag, you came to get that one of those looks like you fucking joking, man. <laughs> well, it was a like, we're doing this in two parts. We got to do this in two parts. So we'll we'll see. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. see. Well, we're gonna start it off with a movie that is a little indie film that people either seem to absolutely adore, which I'm one of those people. Or are completely baffled what people see in it. And that is Donnie Darko getting re-released again. This movie is like the White Album. It's like once every couple of years, they're like, let's put out Donnie Darko again. In yeah. a slightly better or at least parallel <laughs> format. And now, of course, it's finally out on 4K from Arrow. Uh, I, I will say that I had just gotten the previous release on Blu-ray of this, which hadn't come out that <laughs> long beforehand from Arrow. And this is odd that they chose not to include a 1080 version in here. If you buy this, it, there's no 4K and then the Blu-ray. Because a lot of people, most, almost all 4Ks are sold with a Blu-ray version yeah. as well. This doesn't. If you don't have a 4K player, 
You're out, you're out of luck. Though it does have both the director's and normal cuts of the movie, at least, so there's that for it. It does, although you're not going to catch me rewatching the director's cut of this movie. This is like the movie that I hold up as the example for how director's cuts are not always better than I've the regular cut. I've only seen the director's cut. Oh, no, Aaron. Do yes. not use... So you're not totally in love with this movie, then, I'm going to assume. Actually, I mostly enjoy it. I think it doesn't make any sense, and that's okay, because that's kind of a Richard E. Kelly uh, hallmark. You know, like, all of his movies are... I enjoy more than I don't like, and I think they're brilliant ideas that just barely don't make any sense whatsoever. Oh, you're such a so much nicer person than I am, because I think all his other movies are dog shit, except for Donnie Darko. Oh, I... Well, see, <laughs> but, okay, I'm not going to defend the the one with Justin Timberlake in it. Southland Tales? Yeah, I'm not going to defend that. I, I would defend that over but The Box. The Box, I remember going, this is a great movie, up until a certain point, and then there's, like, you hit that point, and then, it's, no, well, this well, is Because terrible. the original idea came from wasn't his idea. Yeah, it was it, a short story. Yeah, I, and I believe a Twilight Zone episode uh-huh. at some point. It's so it's fine until he decides to get all weird with it, him with it, yeah. and then it <laughs> turns into this terrible piece of shit. And you're like, you should have just stuck to the original story. <laughs> the, but you know, Donnie Darko is 100 percent him. Uh, it was 100% original. I remember I went to go... It was one of those ones they didn't screen this for press at all anywhere. And we went to go see it uh, with a friend. I was like, I heard about this. I want to see this. I've been hearing good things. And it blew me out of my seat. See, I, I missed the initial push of this when it was an independent release. It was only after it came out on video and was already kind of a cult classic. And it was, check out Donnie Darko. You gotta. Right. Everyone. That's when I finally got to see it. Uh, but, I, you know, I almost immediately bought a copy of it, too, when it was available. I, I've seen this movie a lot of times. And I get it for people. It's, I mean, shit, I'm surprised you even liked it with the director's cut. Because I really do think it's just one of the worst director's cuts You ever. know, I, I think it's only if you have the comparison. Because going into the director's cut, like, no, it, it's, it's a complete movie. It makes sense. It tells a good story. Uh, it, it's a little montage but that's okay. The music is good. Uh, that's because he has this weird habit of every single set of characters he introduces, he introduces with this slow motion montage. Yeah. Uh, and, and some 80s song. Yeah, and some 80s song. <laughs> which, which it was good days. It was funny. Like, I remember the soundtrack of this, even though this is all songs from, like, when I went to high school. And these characters in high schools, I'm like, oh, I'm about the same age as these people <laughs> in the context of the movie. That the songs were all stuff that largely weren't things I was familiar with. Like, I would like, oh, yeah, I kind of remember the song. It wasn't a huge hit, but, like, the New Wave kids liked it. And I was like, that was cool, kind of getting to discover a bunch of new shit. And I listened to the soundtrack to this and the score, which is fantastic, all the time. That's the one extra thing they should have included with the set is just straight up, like, a new version of the, the, the full score soundtrack. I agree, actually wholeheartedly it's a great soundtrack it's where mad world got its big popular push yeah which i mean originally was recorded completely differently and then uh what's his name gary jules i think i think gary jules uh was like i have this i i just i think the story is he went it just came to me in the middle of the night re-record this song and do it this way and they were like oh my god and that's like the song that people identify with this movie because it's creepy and effective and it makes you want to cry and remember your 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 high school years disturbingly enough i'm young enough that my association of that song comes from Gears of War even though when I saw that on the Gears of War ad I was like oh it's Donnie Darko <laughs> and this movie had a lot you know a lot of reach in other ways as well I mean let's not forget that this introduced largely the world the first big success for Jake Gyllenhaal Maggie Gyllenhaal and Jenna Malone uh, as well as by the way Seth Rogen's first film 
He plays a small I role saw, in it. Yes, yeah. I saw that. Yeah, he's, he's like a random school, high school bully. Kind of school stoner bully, but yeah. and he's even got some dialogue, but he's not really a big character in it. But yeah, this was his first film. It's back when he was clean shaven in yeah. the Geeks and Freaks era, which is always weird to see him crop up occasionally. And there are other people here who, like, this was kind of a, we haven't seen them, we hadn't seen them do anything good in a while. Like, Patrick Swayze was, like, one of those guys who had semi-retired kind of before this, and was like, wow, that's so cool, Patrick Swayze in a big role. Drew Barrymore was kind of just starting to ease, ease back out of her self-imposed, I gotta get off drugs and alcohol. It, it was her as an adult, finally. Yeah. Uh, sorry, her as an adult actress being an adult in movies. Yeah, I mean, she. I think she had already done the first Charlie's Angels at this point and had a big comeback with that. Was it? Um, and, was and, and Scream as well. Because Scream, I, I remember being one of the really big, like, holy shit, Drew well, Barrymore is all grown up. It, it was the, Scream was the, we're gonna make you think she's the main character and then kill her off in the opening. But yeah, a lot of people know Wiley. This was kind of, everyone was still kind of expecting he was going to turn into a big Hollywood star after a really long run on ER, and it never really completely happened. Hey, he had the librarians. (laughs) And oh yeah, I forgot, Catherine Ross, who plays like Donnie's therapist, you know who she is? Who? She was the, the wife in The Graduate. What? Yeah. Bullshit. She used to be a huge star back in the day, an award-winning actress, but she completely retired from acting for decades, and they sought her out specifically to try and get her to come back for this part. Very strange. But you know what? I learned about a lot of that watching all the bonus features here, which, like like I said, it looks great on 4K, obviously sounds better. It's the best version of it that's out there of e- either cut, although, once again, I highly recommend just watching the original theatrical no, one. I, I want to go see the theatrical cut now. Uh, but the... Bonus features here are impressive. Now, that being said, the bulk of them, like 90% of them, are also on the previous Blu-ray. But a lot of these have been, like, have been the extra features themselves that are newer have been upgraded to 4K, which is kind of cool. And there's a lot of good stuff on here, including a feature-length documentary about the making of this film. Which has to be a fascinating watch. It is. I watched it. Because <laughs> I love, I'm a dork for Donnie Darko, man. I don't know what to tell you. There's lots of stuff on here I hadn't seen before, too. There's a bunch of stuff. Uh, they had a fan contest, a, a Darkomentary. You had to, like, make a... Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, and there was a, there's a thing, they made me do it, and they made made me do it, too, which is, like, basically looking at the cult and other artists and how they've been inspired by Donnie Darko in other art forms. That's interesting. There's a lot of archival interviews. Uh, there's production diaries. Three, I'm sorry, two different commentaries here. Um, well, three if you count the one on the, the uh, uh, director's cut as well, which weirdly features Kevin Smith, who has absolutely no connection to this film whatsoever, except that I guess he likes it. And it's just him and the director fucking around for the full movie length and not really talking about the movie. Which, I'm really upset I didn't explore this disc more. <laughs> which I guess is cool, but because you got a proper commentary on the other disc, but maybe he didn't want... Maybe he was like, okay, I guess everybody hates my director's cut, so maybe me and Kevin Smith will just well, talk about getting high. And I also have the sense that Richard E. Kelly is one of those people who... Uh, prides himself on his work being obtuse. And so he's like, no, 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 I I can't explain what the new scenes mean. I have an accent like this because this is what pretension sounds like. I don't think he knows. I don't. I think he just comes up with shit and sets it down. And, and like, I think there's other people, too, who do weird stuff that couldn't necessarily explain to you, but it works, at least to some people. Like, I've always said David Lynch is one of those guys. Like, when you oh, yeah. really start to listening to him... I. A lot of the time, he doesn't know either, but he it feels totally right to him. And the way his mind works is 
in such a way that you're like, yeah, you live in a dream existence and you kind of have your own weird dream language and you speak it very well. And other people like Richard Kelly sometimes are like, yeah, I feel like you're just trying to be cool. Yeah, Richard E. Kelly has no creamed corn. <laughs> no. <laughs> the Richard Kelly is not what they seem. All right, well, we're going to move off of Donnie Darko 4K and on to another very cult, somewhat psychedelic film from a different director, Olivier... Uh, oh, my goodness, I just forgot his name. Holy shit. Uh, Olivier uh, Sayas, uh, Irma Vep, um, 1996 film... Starring, and this was weird, Maggie Cheung, who at that point was largely just known in China, but was becoming a huge star in China. Like, everyone's like, wow, she's amazing. And I knew her more from the action films. Same here. Yeah. I, I freaked out when I saw them acknowledge that she was in Heroic Trio. Yeah, uh, they show scenes from Heroic <laughs> yes, Trio. Know. That was the main thing I knew her from. <laughs> I, I legit paused the movie and went, oh my god, honey, to my wife. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. It's her from Heroic Trio. Ah! But she ultimately is better known for working with uh, like Wong Kar Wai and people like that doing these incredible sumptuous art Chinese films that would actually go and win best foreign language feature here. Uh, she's a deeply respected actress even at this point in her career in the 90s. I mean, she just went on for a continued acclaim for the rest of her career. But it's odd seeing her play herself and she's stuck in this movie in a weird position because she's come to France to make a movie with this director who's a, who's a fan, but he's an older director and he's kind of having in the middle of a nervous breakdown and like there keep being delays and weird shit is going on. And she doesn't speak French and none, nobody else on the set speaks Chinese, but every, she speaks English flawlessly and everybody else kind of sort of speaks yeah. English. So it, it's like, she's, it, there's, there's a communication barrier but the oddest thing is there. I learned a lot watching this about French history and this film that this whole movie centers around called Les Vampires, which was a silent film that apparently was a very big cult thing in France and in certain I love obscure silent film circles. Yeah, like it's one that I've heard of and I think that most like uh, college film geeks probably know the title of, but nobody's ever actually seen. Yeah, I mean, I think for a long time, most I think most of it still doesn't even exist. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, it's 1915 to 1916 serial film in France. But it was like featured this character who was like dressed in a cat suit, you know, like there was, there was a burglar. And the idea is this is a modern remake and Maggie Chung is like being fitted through a lot of this with this cat suit like vinyl cat suit that looks amazing on her yeah, and you're like god damn maggie jung and then she kind of there's this whole thing which i think is easily the best part of the movie where she's like i'm gonna actually go and be a cat burglar in this fucking thing and oh. just pulls off a crime in it like for no reason yeah, except oh. to do it <laughs> so this movie feels a lot more like the slice of life look at Hollywood that we've seen before. They're almost always like about some producer who's like coking himself to death throughout the course of the movie. Yeah. And so like, this is the French version of that, except there is no producer and it's really a fish out of water story of Mackie Chung in the French film culture. And it's a series of conversations shot handheld. Everyone's basically just lecturing her on different opinions on how French cinema is dead throughout the movie. Yeah. And she spends the entire movie just going like, I, I don't care. I just kind of want to work, and yeah. why can't we all be nice to each other? It's one of the oddest things about <laughs> this movie is, not, first off, none of these people who work in these films seem to like each other at all. No, they hate but each other. also, the whole movie is constantly berating, these characters berating Maggie Chung and each other that, like, art film is just pretension. 
you know, that's like, oh, we love these action films that you did. And he's making an art film about it. He's making a very pretentious well, film about the pretend art films are pretentious. And I'm kind of, I find myself absolutely confused at what he was trying to accomplish here. So, like, I, I don't ultimately know what the movie was trying to say either, because it does have a lot of mixed messages, but... It's also one that it focuses on a lot of rarely seen aspects of film production, like set dressing and making sure that uh, the costumes fit, like just the nuts and bolts, nitty gritty side. So I, I ended up really having a good time with it. And even though it doesn't really have a true, I'll put it in quotes, plot, it still manages to be an interesting scene by scene story that, that carries you through the whole thing. Like I had a good time with it. I, yeah, I, I legitimately too. enjoyed this a lot more than I was expecting to. And a lot more than the movie that I watched afterwards that I thought I would like a lot. Of. Oh, fair enough. Well, I guess we'll get to that one. Yeah. Uh, but this has a very fly on the wall type of technique. Yeah. And, and Maggie Chung is the, that outsider who's observing and everybody like either wants to impress her or they're, kind of sick of people who are trying to impress her i mean like i said there's a lot of this movie's kind of about pretension and it is pretentious yes. but it's also enjoyable i i don't know i liked it i wish there had been more of her going out and in the cat suit and committing crimes but i think everybody <laughs> agrees with that uh interesting thing i didn't realize that uh the director and her met on this film and got married and were married for years oh uh but they they divorced stayed friends and they in fact just recently worked on a project together because they just never stopped being friends what i really want to know is that in this movie she tells a story about how she doesn't actually have any fight experience whatsoever mm -hmm. and she's in all these action movies and whenever they have to show her fighting they'll cut to a stunt double mm. i don't know if that's real I want it to be. I don't and know either. I desperately want to go back through and watch those action movies she was in and see, like, holy shit, is that really a stunt woman? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know, actually. I was assumed because really so many people in the Hong Kong film system like, went to, yeah. like, from a very young age, they went to basically acting school, or if they were very lucky and their parents were successful, they could get sent to the Peking Opera School, which is where, like, Jackie Chan and Sammo yeah. Hung went. But you say very lucky. It's basically tantamount to well, child abuse, but but it'll make you into a total badass, you know, who but, can do like weird wriggle calisthenic shit, like you know, body contortions and can do huge yeah, stunts. They and, can do the stunts, you know, grow up learning martial arts. But not everybody, obviously. I mean, it's come on, like here I'm a white guy going. Everyone in China knows martial arts really well. It's like, I, that'd be no, no, awesome no. if it was what true. What you're saying is that only the actors know martial yeah. arts really well. <laughs> but which is maybe the truth is, though, the bulk of people who made it in the Hong Kong industry actually do know a decent amount of martial arts. But I, I don't know how much of that was taught to them well before they decided to become an actor or how much, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Anyway, it's surprising to hear that Maggie Chung is not one of the people, but it also kind of Which, explains more why she got away from the action stuff and went to more arty sort of period piece. Although things. it's also a random line she has in a narrative movie. So like, yeah. we're just taking it on faith that that's really her. Because she's playing that. herself. Yeah. Well. I don't know. <laughs> but, but nevertheless, that's what I took away from Irma Webb is that like, did Maggie Chan do her own stunts? Well, I there, need to know. There is a, it's a criterion release of this. So there is a new interview with the director where he talks about, you know, his style, uh, him sort of like learning things that would define him later, experimenting through this film, which was really for him, a minor film he was doing between bigger movies. And this was the one that people talked about. Um, there's a archival video interview with Oliver, uh, Assayas, uh, sorry, Olivier Assayas and critic Charles Tesson talking about how much they love Asian cinema, how like the 
process of getting Maggie Chung involved here. Uh, Maggie, Maggie Chung and, and Nathalie Richard uh, talk about their both their parts they were offered in here and working with the director. There's a raw footage from the shooting of it on the set, which is about 30 minutes. And you know what that stuff's like. You have to yeah. really like something to watch the raw, raw footage. Raw footage of everyone speaking French. Uh, then there's a episode of the original Les Vampires, uh, Hypnotic Eyes, which is one of the ones that focuses on the character that Maggie Chung was playing, who's not the main character from that serial, but she was one of the most memorable ones, certainly. Um, there's Misidora, the Tenth Muse, a documentary film which takes a look at the life and legacy of Misidora, who was a actor and filmmaker who originated that role in Irma Vap. I mean, this really goes deep into all the, like, influences. All the <laughs> uh, State of Cinema is a... Uh, basically just a speech by Oliver Isaias from 2020, which I, I don't even think it really has anything to do with this movie. It was like, well, we got the rights to use it. So, But he's talking about uh, the state of cinema. Man Yuck, a portrait of Ma Maggie Chung, a short film also directed by this director uh, from 1997, which is just uh, what it says it is. Uh, black and White Rushes, a collection of the rushes in black and white that were done during the shooting of this, four minutes of that, and then there's a leaflet. There's a lot here. And I know some people are like, love this movie like it's a it's definitely a cult film but it's not going to be for everyone no question there's uh, some i saw this years ago and i found it boring as shit the first time i saw it huh. this time i watched it i really enjoyed it so i guess you just depends on where you are you know uh let's move on to our next title which i loved it happened tomorrow now yes i'm gonna say right now i have never seen the tv show early edition i'm aware that it existed early edition what why are you looking confused I don't remember what this movie is about at all. A uh, guy who gets a newspaper from... <laughs> oh, yes, I'm okay. back. Okay. So, Early Edition uh, is a television series that had the guy from Friday Night Lights, Kyle Chandler, in it. That was, like, one of his first big shows. It only went on for a few seasons, but it was the guy who, like, would... Every morning, he would get the next day's newspaper would show up on his step, and like, in, from the future. And, and and they never explained why anywhere in the series, but he would go out and go, like, oh, God, I gotta help this person before they get in an accident and shit like that. Very TV show in the 90s. So this, like, at no point would they ever admit that they totally ripped the, off this movie, <laughs> but they did. And yeah, I didn't absolutely. know this even existed. It happened tomorrow. This is a 1944 fantasy film directed by Renee Claire, who was actually known for a decent amount of sort of incorporating fantasy like this into his films. And starring Dick Powell, who, by the way, I didn't realize, but he was the first guy ever to play Philip Marlowe on film. Okay. And not in this movie, mind you. Uh, Linda Darnell and Jack Oakey. You want to give the plot for this one, or do you need me to? Uh, no, no, no. I, you got I, it now? I, I, I mostly remember it. Okay. Yeah, it, it follows a, a basically a burgeoning newspaper man, and it's a bunch of guys sitting around in a room, and this is no bullshit how it begins, uh, shooting the shit, drinking booze, and talking about life in the 20s, I think. Uh, when they meet, who is ultimately kind of this weird ghostly elderly character who talks only in rhymes and riddles he's basically um uh well he's he's the old he's, guy who runs the the, the earlier circulations part of the newspaper department well, it's he plays that same character that you see in a thousand different time travel movies just like this i'm uh Okay. He's like Grandma Who's Dap the guy of from this community? movie. <laughs> Who's the guy from Community? Chevy Chase. He's Chevy Chase in Hot Tub Time Machine. Okay. Who shows up and only speaks in riddles. Yeah. Uh, and basically, through casual conversation, he ends up uh, suggesting to this guy that, yeah, you know, like, 
what if you just get the news from the future? And lo and behold, he gets a newspaper randomly the next day. And oh, my God, this is tomorrow's events. <laughs> and he spends an entire day going, I'm better than you. I know everything. <laughs> and uh, it ends up all coming true. He has a wonderful life. And I'm botching this entirely. Let me yeah, rewind yeah, it. I, I, think, I think you're more <laughs> or less... I mean, like, because like, it starts so, with him going, look, I'm rich, successful, have a huge family. They're having so, what he's like, I forget how, whatever he, birthday. Here's the thing, like, about this movie. It's weird because, like, structurally, the whole thing takes place over three days. And it's really a quarter or a third of him going, ha, 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 I'm better than everyone. A third of him going, oh, my God, I really need to actually go out and help people and see people using this information. Yeah. And I want to truly try to make the world a better place. And then the last third of it is the main character going, you know what? This isn't going to last forever. I really need to set myself up for success and try to make myself rich. And so, like, it's... It's this very episodic movie where the individual episodes are really fun and entertaining and yay, he's kind of falling in love with a woman and she's kind of falling in love with him, you know, instantly the way they do in the that uh, yeah, that whole like and, I've met the woman I'm gonna marry and yeah. I'm gonna marry you. I agree. And so like <laughs> two hours later. <laughs> nobody's really a good person, but the comedy is on point, the writing is great, it has a great flow to it, yeah. and so it, it's a thoroughly enjoyable piece. It's just kind of hard to explain, because it really doesn't have a traditional structure at all. No. It's odd for a 1944's film, because it's kind of screwball comedy, yeah, but, but it's also entirely. kind of an action film at points, and it's kind of like a weird fantasy sci-fi mystery, and it's definitely kind of a romance movie, but it never really commits to any of no, those things. None of them. It's a big, crazy mishmash of like things all with a overlay of, of magical realism to it which is I don't know it's an odd film I've never seen anything else really like it's it it's a very 40s movie but I enjoyed sense. the shit out of it nonetheless yeah. I'm like this keeps doing things I wasn't expecting like <laughs> it it's one of those movies where I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to somebody who wasn't already. I enjoy old cinema, but if you enjoy classic cinema, especially if you enjoy comedies of the day with the language that they have, you're going to dig the shit out of this yeah. movie. And I think this is going to be for a lot of people like it was for me. Like I never even heard of this fucking thing. Yeah, I had uh, like, so total surprise. I'm like, Oh, I'm keeping this. This is staying on my shelf is like a little, Oh man, you'd like this. This is fun. Um, there's no real extras here. Unfortunately, just a, just a trailer, uh, not even a vintage one, one that the Cohen film collection who put out this Blu-ray assembled for it. So nothing special there, as it were. Who needs a newly made trailer for well, a film like this? It, I, I want to say it's a Kino release. Uh, uh, yes, but and, Cohen, Cohen, like the, okay. well, the Kino just, distributes for Cohen. The I only believe. reason I say that is because I know that they don't always have a ton of great special features on their desks. No, it's weird. And sometimes they do, though. And I'm always like, yeah. I make, I, and like every time they don't, though, it's always it's always a movie where I find myself wishing I really did know a lot more about what happened behind the scenes. Yeah, very true. Uh, and this is one I would I would have been interested in knowing more, but it's also not essential. This is fluff, but it's really good fluff. Yeah. So we'll move on to Giants and Toys, which I'm sure was Aaron's favorite movie in the set this, it was this not, week. No, he loves but movies I like about it. Japanese people doing Japanese things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I was messaging you randomly uh, about how similar this was to movies that we had covered in the past, uh, Black Car Test Report, which mm -hmm. it's it's basically that same story but with color. And so, uh, since Chris is looking at me expectantly, <laughs> basically what the movie is, it's about the cutthroat um, 
kill or be killed world of caramel manufacturing and selling in Japan in the 60s. Mind you, he didn't say car, he said caramel. Caramel. Or yeah. caramel, caramel or whatever. Like, I would be clear because we just talked about a movie that was the same thing but about cars. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, like, it truly is. It follows a bunch of uh, admin who they work for. I don't even remember the name of the company. Uh, there are three competing cam- candy companies, and it focuses on, I th- want to say, giant candy Yeah, this giant world, okay. and I forget what the third one was. It doesn't matter. It follows the three, three or four admin who work there. They are coming up on the new season of caramel all three companies are releasing a new flavor of caramel and they're trying to discover who is going to be the biggest caramel seller of the year again i'm dead serious this is the plot um <laughs> and like it, it really is just tracking what they're trying to do from an advertising standpoint how they're using different forms of media uh, one company comes up with an ad campaign to give someone like basically a free college experience mm-hmm. one company's just given away a bunch of candy and the main characters find a really beautiful woman with really terrible teeth and turn her into a supermodel yeah um and it tracks that little adventure as they slowly degrade into doing more and more unpleasant and more out morally compromising things to get their company on top of the caramel game but like <laughs> It sounds silly. It's not really like the movie takes it very seriously. And just like the black test car report did. The only difference is that because this is shot 20 years later, it's so much more dynamic. See, it's bright and colorful and the camera work is good. This is the the thing we disagree about, though, because whereas I think black test report is just it's not a satire. It's an angry screed about the problems with capitalism inside of Japanese culture. This is a satire of it. Yeah. I think this one is intentionally trying to be absurd as possible, but it's just as angry. It's just meant to be taken as a satire. See, I, I don't know that only because I've spent my entire almost 40 years of life watching movies talking about how brutal and cutthroat the Japanese business culture is mm. to to a point that you could tell me that. And I'm like, you know what? Sure. That makes perfect sense. But you could also sit there and go like, no, this is based on a true story. This shit really happened. Here are their names and pictures. And this is the truth. And I'd be like, yeah, OK, that makes sense. Uh, interestingly, the guy who's the guy who discovers the young ingenue with bad teeth and the actress who didn't really have bad teeth they had done it for the movie who's gorgeous in real life met on this film and went on to be married for a very long time wait wait you mean the guy who obliquely hates her and refuses to be near her all the time that's awesome yeah that's sweet yeah and they worked on a shit ton of films after this together yeah like, like honestly if you're into that kind of cutthroat corporate politics i think that this is a pretty cool movie uh it moves at a pretty quick clip it it does it does have cultural barriers because yes, for sure. it's a bunch of conservative men in a very different culture in a very different time. And so like that is a barrier, but as long as you're aware of that or you already know that barrier and you know you can get past it, I, I had a blast with this movie. It's you know, like I said, but I me picturing it as a satire, I think one of the big end run points of this that it's also doing along with its taking down a business culture is showing it's satirizing celebrity culture yeah. and showing how absurd it is. Cause like 
this would never happen. Like, you watch it, you like, there's no way a girl with teeth this bad would become a huge, <laughs> success, way successful model who was regularly showing off her teeth. It's just, it wouldn't happen. I, I admit, I spent the entire movie waiting for them to fix her teeth. Yeah, and, and then <laughs> by the end, she's like this self-important diva, and it's definitely a takedown of celebrity culture okay. and how absurd it is as well. I have to point out, Mick Jagger exists. That's true, but, you know, <laughs> I hate to say this, but... Let's face it, there are different rules for men and then there are for women, especially in the 50s. So, this is true. <laughs> uh, there are, this is Arrow, so it's a really nice new fixed-up edition. There's a brand new audio commentary by Japanese cinema scholar Irene Gonzalez-Lopez. There is a new introduction by cinema expert Tony Raines. There's In the Realm of the Publicists, which is a brand new short essay by Asian cinema scholar Earl Jackson. There's the original trailer, image gallery. It's got a reversible sleeve with new newly commissioned artwork by Tony Stella. And if you pick up the first pressing of this, it comes with an illustrated collector's booklet with new writing by Michael Rain about the film. But overall, I mean, this is... You probably already know whether this is your type of thing or not. It's not for everyone, certainly. No. I I don't think it was really for me, but I'm glad I saw it. And it's considered a masterpiece in Japan. Like, this is a film people still reference and talk about as being super important. Anyway, uh, we're going to move on to another country entirely because, you know, I mean, we've we've talked about Japan enough for one episode. <laughs> Let's talk about, wait, where is, where is this, uh, Madame Reza? Is this, uh, it's French. Yeah, we're going back to France. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, my God. Sorry, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going there. Madame Rosa, 1977 French drama film that's now getting a Blu-ray re-release. And this sounds like, why in the world would you pick out of nowhere this 1977 French drama film? Well, because it won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film that year. And I'm always like, well, shit, man, if you won that big of an award, you must be at least worth checking out. Right? Okay, I, I assumed the same thing. Yeah, and Madame Rosa is another film that I'm going to say right off the bat is not going to be for everyone, but it is interesting what it is, in fact, trying to do. And the lead actress, Simone Signoret, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly or not, is like won a shit ton of awards. At one point, she was considered one of the most beautiful women in the world. This is long after that point. <laughs> she, at this point, Aww. is very matronly and elderly, um, but she plays a woman who was once one of the most beautiful women in the world, but a prostitute. The idea is like she was a young, hot girl who made a great living being a prostitute and then a madame, and now she's too old for any of that. And she now lives in Paris, where she runs a house that's basically just a place where she takes in children and gets paid by the state to support them. So she has children from all these different countries living in her house that are, she's trying to get them adopted and what have you. And it's about her relationship, especially with one of them, who's a Algerian boy that she makes a decision that's complicated as she being a Jewish woman who was, you know, at the concentration, in the concentration camps during the Holocaust survived it. And this kid is a, she chooses to, raise him as a Muslim because that is decidedly his descent. And that's a complicated decision for a Jewish woman who at that point in the 70s, there was a lot of lack. I mean, there obviously still is, but between Arabs and Jews. And this kind of focuses on the complications that are involved in that and some of the decisions she makes as she's slowly getting more and more in bad health and out of touch. And the kid is starting to realize that he's going to end up having to go his own way. Like, so this is the movie I watched after after Irma Webb that Mm -hmm. I I did not care for. And it's weird because I think it's a very well-acted, well-shot movie. I like the... I I like the emotional story it tells because, like, right out of the gate, Madame Rosa is going, I'm dying. Like, she tells you, like... I think her opening line, even, 
was that her heart's giving out. Right. And so it very much is trying to understand who she is as you go through her final days and the, the ripples it has off. And the one thing that we also didn't touch on that we kind of glossed over that I thought was really cool was that, yes, she is essentially a nanny where she takes in kids and they send her payments so that she can take care of them, but she takes in kids of prostitutes. Yes. And so like this movie is very much all about prostitutes for being a movie about a dying elderly woman and her 14 year old live in child. Right. Um, but yeah, like it's a very slice of life. It's very much just kind of letting life unfold. Um, and it's, they touch on a lot of things that are important and you can tell that this was probably very big in French culture, mm-hmm. especially with, I know that, I know that, that that they have a complicated past with people from a few different countries. And yes. so, but I don't think it ever really hits in any of those hard enough for me. It's, it, it, it might be just because it's now, and so yeah. I don't have that association. It's, but f- it's odd that it's kind of, it's clearly talking about the classes, class differences, race differences, religion differences, and the complications involved. I mean, with allusions to, of course, the Holocaust, to the Arab-Israeli conflict, but it feels like it's just kind of lightly dealing with them. And it feels like why, this feels like there should be another set of characters in here who come in as sort of hardliners who are like with the threat of violence. And that never really feels like that's part of this. It feels like this is adapted from a book where there was a rich inner life explored in the books. And then when we get to the movie, we just lost a lot of content for time. Mm -hmm. And so like, like, yeah, it always feels like they're dancing around the topics that what this movie is supposed to be about. And I think that the reason for that was they didn't want to make something that reminded you of like of the that indulged in the darker side of this sort of racism it wanted to be a film about peacefulness about sort of like coming to terms with you know hatred ending and what have you and i think what you get is a film that's more designed for people who are even old even older than me (laughs) but i did kind of enjoy it i found it sweet i think the performance of the lead is fantastic in this um little kid who played the, the you know the the adopted child momo as far as I can tell, never really did anything after this in acting, but he's great in it. Um, yeah, I wanted this to be better, but it's just okay. Uh, maybe I'm just, maybe I, you have to be 60. To I, I think this movie is, it's gonna, you're gonna relate to it far more looking at it as a tale of the twilight years of somebody sure. than really a movie about any of the politics and racism that existed in the world in that area at that time. Sure. It's not that this is a movie about a complex woman in her last days and the child who lived with her. So our next movie is another Blu-ray re-release of another film I'd heard of, but was literally inaccessible to get was FTA. Now, FTA, what is FTA? FTA is a a festival that went around, a comedy and music festival that was organized by Jane Fonda, Donald Sutherland, and a bunch of other people that was basically like, fuck Vietnam, get out of Vietnam. 
that was very endorsed by a lot of soldiers. Like the, if you go back and you look at ma major media at the time, they always pointed at stuff like this as like fucking communists. They were not on the side of people like Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland. But the truth was during the war, uh, it was arguably the bulk of the soldiers were like, this conflict is stupid and it's trying to kill us and we need to get out of here. And this documentary, which was supposed to come out widely uh, in 19, what, 1972, 70s. I guess. Um, really only hit a smattering of theaters because the distributor got scared off. I mean, there were literally politicians calling the distributor going, if you show that movie, we're going to make your life difficult. Which is weird because I don't see this movie as one that would have changed a huge amount of minds. Now, like, it's not Woodstock or anything here. There's not, you're not going to see Jimi Hendrix play or really anybody you've ever heard of. Donald Sutherland. Yeah, there's a, a couple <laughs> comedians that you and actors that you know doing very, very broad sketch comedy. Yeah, this is... This is a concert doc about a comedy show, mm -hmm. basically. Like, like that's that's kind of all it is, and and that's the thing that I think is going to be the, it's going to be the biggest hurdle that you have to get over because, like, yes, this has a certain amount of importance and notoriety because of its own history, mm -hmm. but as far as just a product, a a film that exists, it's okay. Yeah. I, I, I laughed and yeah. I thought it was a really interesting story, but it's okay. It's a definitely, it's definitely an interesting picture of something that a lot of people don't even know was happening. And it was a direct response to Bob Hope's longtime USO shows where he would go out and go, you know, do comedy, and which I'm not shitting on. I mean, you go there with like, you get buxom Playboy models to go out on stage with them and, you know, the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders or what have you yeah. and have, would have comedians and singers. But they were always very, you know, like drum up playing the war drums, you know, and this was like, we also want to support our troops by not letting them get killed in a pointless and horrible war. <laughs> and yeah. so it was kind of like, Oh, this is the hippie version of what was going on there. I mean, it is interesting, but you know, it's nothing I'm going to go back and rewatch. Exactly. I mean, this is a film you get. You're like, well, I guess nowadays your granddad who's like <laughs> still like, Oh, you kids today in the sixties, we were about something like here, dad, just watch this and yeah. shut up. He'll love it. It'll be great. <laughs> You'll have to hear stories for a couple of weeks and then it'll be fine. Uh, but it's okay. I'm glad I saw it. There are new extras, including a new introduction by Jane Fonda talking about it. Um, I always forget she's still alive. I don't know how, I guess she just doesn't do much anymore. Uh, there's a 2005 interview with Jane Fonda. There's a booklet with essays uh, by some historians about this. And the biggest thing here is there's a whole nother movie called Sir No Sir, which is a documentary from 2005, which is, for all extents and purposes, about the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is the original film. No, Sir No Sir is sort of a documentary about this film <laughs> happening and then about several other things like I, it. I like that in any other situation, Sir No Sir would be the actual title we'd be reviewing. Sure. And then FTA would be a random special feature on it. Like, and you can watch the original. <laughs> well, as long as we're talking about documentaries, we'll go right into the next one, which is Punk the Capital. This is one of those ones that I, the buddy who hooks me up with stuff from Arrow was like, I know you like this kind of shit. You know, we're <laughs> putting this out soon. It's like, great, can I get it? He's like, yeah, but I'm not sure when we're actually getting <laughs> product. So will you watch a link? I'm like, okay, fine. Yeah, no, I just got a random email from yeah. you that was like, add one to the stack. <laughs> but this is Punk Punk the Capital, or the longer title says, Building a Sound Movement. So here's the thing. This is apparently connected to an epics, which I don't have epics uh, I do channel. Have I don't know anyone who does, but apparently they produced a punk mini doc docu series. And this is kind of a 
for all extents and purposes, like, an, oh, I guess we didn't do enough about DC. <laughs> so let's do, let's do a deep dive on DC's hardcore scene. But that's the thing. Knowing that, I go, oh, yeah, that's what it is. Because this feels like it's just a super long chapter of a bigger series. Because it's so utterly, weirdly specific yeah. about not just DC hardcore, which, of course, it's about what else you can talk about, but very narrow and specific elements of it, which is to say Bad Brains, uh, Ian McKay at Discord Records, and, of course, Minor Threat. And then to a lesser extent, the is like the bands that were kind of around the sidelines, but in the early days, this is really only about like 1977 to maybe 1984 that it's looking seriously at. And even then, like I said, and, it's like maybe five or six bands. It's even bothering to like name and, check. <laughs> and it's also delightfully hyperbolic. Like I, I always try to like take music documentaries with a certain amount of a grain of salt, but there is a point where I think it was Henry Rollins who's in this yeah. refers to a band who like never quite got out of the garage as one of the greatest bands that's ever existed in the history of the world. It's <laughs> <laughs> just like, really? I mean, I'm not denied that they were impactful for you, but really? You know, different like, people with different tastes. And like I was telling you about that before we started recording. That's one of the things that I, I occasionally roll my eyes at with punk and I, I ultimately appreciate so I'm I'm not a big punk fan. I love punk movies though, mm -hmm. because no topic is too niche, no topic is too specific, because it was such a diverse uh evolving community that showed up in so many different places you could legitimately do that. And like I'll admit that this documentary could have lost half an hour yeah and it would have been a lot more enjoyable yeah. and i probably would have not gone okay come on be be done now I, I but just, like if you're into the washington dc hardcore punk scene with these specific bands i think you're gonna love the shit out of this but i mean arguably dc invented hardcore punk arguably and this movie certainly go. wants to make that argument they're very proud of dc hardcore punk they're very proud of it of what a thing a lot of punk because I was here during this period I was going to DC and seeing punk shows a lot there like Ian McKay's vision is always like this is yeah so Ian McKay lead singer minor threat and later Fugazi is always like it's always about positivity it's like dude everyone I know remembers you as being a very not positive real self important prick and there's a point in this film where he and HR are kind of in a conversation together and he's just like HR is just like. Yeah, man, you kind of climbed up your own ass, dude. And he's like, what? No, no. <laughs> I'm on camera, man. Come on. <laughs> Come on, they're filming this. What are you doing? I, don't know. I mean, I think this is most going to be interesting to people who actually were there for this. And unfortunately, this cuts off at exactly the point that I was old enough to start going to huh. these shows. Like, 1984 is, like, when I'm, like, first starting to, like, be able to go to D.C. and check out punk rock stuff. The year I was born. Oh, so sweet. I was already out there smoking pot. <laughs> <laughs> and drinking beer at bars that did not give a shit that you weren't 21. <laughs> anyway, the main reason to see this either is for that, or there's a lot of bands that, like, they have footage here that just, I don't think anyone has seen before. Yeah, this, if if you, you know. dig punk, specifically this genre of punk, I think, at the very least, it'll be an enjoyable watch for the music. Yeah, agreed. There's a lot of it. A lot. Yeah, enormous. I remember when it's, when it's scrolling just the songs that are played in the movie, it's like, Several minutes yeah. of scrolling. It's the chunk of the the 
it is a chunk of the credits. <laughs> I, I apparently just can't talk today. Like, I keep forgetting common words like, you know, credits <laughs> or title. Dude, it's Sunday. <laughs> We're like, it's the last day of the weekend. We all have been doing things now that we can. I know my brain is a little bit churny. <laughs> I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> I'm trying, damn it. Our next film is a Oscar-nominated Judas and the Black Messiah, which for me was in my top three of, of you know, well, of 2020, but I should say, since it technically came out in 2021, the Oscars slid back its its date for consideration. So even though it's the 2020 Oscars, it was considered in, it's technically this year film. But I, regardless, thought this was great, knew literally nothing about this story at all. Um, I think it's a really important story uh, of the the black movement and the person Fred Hampton, who was a big fucking deal as a you know, revolutionary socialist in America, in Chicago, who ended up being the chairman of the Black Panther Party and ended up doing a thing no one thought anyone could do. He formed this thing called the Rainbow Coalition, which basically brought together every other angry, like, borderline socialist group of different groups of, like, the ethnic groups, religions, what have you, and said, I think we're all mad at the same people. We should yeah. work together, <laughs> which is to say, the police. Yeah. <laughs> but basically, if the cops treat you poorly, he got, he wanted you to come help. But And that's Daniel Kaluuya playing that role in here, but really, this is not even about him. It's about the Judas character played by William Bill O... Is the, character, the person is William Bill O'Neill, who is played by Lakeith Stanfeld, who was caught stealing cars by the FBI... And they're like, look, the FBI guy in question, Jesse Plemons, is like, I'll make a deal with you. We kind of, we don't care about you and your fucking car. The, uh, Wait, the- are, are we past calling him Meth Damon now? Yes, we are. Damn He's it. a proper actor now. <sighs> anyway, sorry, I know you enjoyed that. We all enjoyed it, but, you know, we kind of move on. Okay, okay. There'll be another Meth Damon. There will. I'm sure. Anyway, uh, so he goes, okay, if you spy on this group for us, and it's kind of following this guy who's like, yes, he's turning in all the information into the FBI. And as it goes on, you're like, are you going to make a break and not do what they want? Because he is so convincing as well as being and was in real life of being this guy. They called him like Wild Bill because he was just so like, fuck it, let's shoot him. You know, like he's like the guy who was very much sort of the uncontrollable, angry guy from that particular group. Like Daniel Kaluuya's character is like, yo, yo, man, calm down a little bit. Like, how is this guy the traitor? But he was, so obviously, fascinating story, made for a fascinating movie that I can't believe got kind of mixed reviews from some critics. Because so, I thought this was goddamn near perfect. It got mixed reviews. So that, that surprises me. Yeah. Um, like, coming into this movie, the only thing I really knew about the story was, A, the bullshit I had been taught in school about the Black Panthers, which, uh, for anybody out there, it's all wrong. Um and I had seen a documentary kind of concert video that Criterion has up of the actual protest to free Fred Hampton. Mm. Uh, and so, like, that was it. Uh, and I actually missed out on the entire HBO Max free watching po- portion of this because every time I sat down, I was like, I want to put this on. I want to watch this movie. I couldn't, I wasn't ready to handle what I assumed would be this really dark, depressing, dour film. Cause why wouldn't it be? Sure. And that's the thing that ended up surprising me the most is that this is kind of like, um, uh, not blackish. Um, 
Well, it's definitely not like no, Blackish. No, no, not not Blackish. Uh, <laughs> there was another movie made a couple of years ago, Blind Spotting, that was also about race, but also was serious and dramatic, but had a really fun bone in its yeah. body that kept it always pleasant. Yeah, um, and never really oppressive. And that's this movie. The, the like this also isn't a traditional film. It's written with this very weird, rhythmic, lyrical sense where it kind of feels like almost all of the characters are speaking in verse and poem through a good chunk of the movie. And so it, it gives it this almost almost poetic art film vibe sometimes. Definitely. And then it would drift into being funny as hell and relatable as hell. And so I got pulled along. I loved this movie from frame one to the very last bit of credits. Yeah. It's perfect. It's fucking top notch with yeah. great performances across the board here. I also, I mean, I, I didn't even get into some of the other cast other than the two main stars, but there is actress here, uh, um, Dominique Fishback, who plays Deborah Johnson, who ended up becoming Fred Hampton's girlfriend and was a major member of the Black Panthers. Uh, she's fantastic in this. Yeah. Like a, Award deserving, I will say. Uh, but everybody's good, and there's a lot of people you'll re you'll recognize watching this, including Martin Sheen as J. Edgar Hoover. <laughs> <laughs> well, so Martin Sheen's actually the only part of the movie that I kind of rolled my eyes at because he's playing so obliquely, evilly racist. Like he feels like the evil racist asshole who has to be taught a lesson in every other movie about race that's ever came out. Right, but it also is probably more true to life than you like, so, yeah. yeah, that's the thing. This movie, it's not 100% accurate. There are some things that they they push and they pull. Like, sure. like they kind of make Dramatic up a lot. license. And, and also, like, they make some implications. Like, the, the person who Lakeith Stanfield really played, they imply that, like, he committed suicide because of the footage that he did. Where if you really look into it, he committed suicide the day the show started airing, and his was episode five. Mm. And so it didn't air for months later, and it was just kind of a coincidence. Right. But... More is accurate than not. This is a real story of really fucked up thing that the U.S. government did do. Yeah. No, it's dark when you really look at it. You're like, wow, this is like shit you see happening in third world countries yeah. that the FBI is doing. You're like, fuck. Anyway, and probably still doing just better at keeping mm -hmm. it quiet. Either way, watch this movie. It's amazing, guys. Everyone should see it. And. The sad thing is, for such a good movie that, like I said, it was on the whole widely liked, but for some reason there's some critics who didn't really care for it. I don't get those critics. We're not friends anymore. But <laughs> there's only two extra features here, and they're both short. They're just like two little yeah. sort of EPKs that neither one of which is particularly interesting. And that is a fucking crime. Yeah. Because if there's, it's like, this should have been our pick of the week. If yeah. there is any title on this stack you gave me, this should be filled with historical documentation, talking about the real events, showing footage of Fran Hampton, showing those speeches that they yeah. show snippets of in the film and none of that and here. played out for real. They just like, they, they, this should be a four disc set with that's basically a history course on the Black Panthers. And they just shit it out. Yeah. They're like, oh here it is. I mean sometimes those things are because they're waiting to see if maybe it's a thing that takes a little while to build in power where people are like, God, have you seen it's so good and then they can release a really nice special edition. Or they can like 
lease it to somebody like Criterion and get paid for them to put out mm-hmm. and do do a really nice special edition. And, and just to throw it out there, studio, I will buy that. And to be clear, the major studios are the ones that have not bought into the physical media is is staying around thing because a lot you know almost every major studio does not give a shit about bonus features anymore. Sure, so like yeah, we just put it out for those few people who want this and aren't just going to buy the digital code online, you know, because they think everything is going that way. But as more and more people are finding. Oh, you mean the fine print says you don't have to keep my digital copy existing, <laughs> and then once it's gone, even if you bring it back six months later, I don't own it anymore? Yeah. So it's company, the smaller companies like Criterion and Arrow and Synapse and are the ones who are really like about doing films that are filled with bonus stuff. Well, it's because they're trying to put out reference quality materials, mm-hmm. which shamefully this is nowhere near. No. All right, so we're going to move on to a little festival sci-fi film that played Fantasia in 2020 called Lapsus, but now it is out on DVD and VOD. This is an odd little sci-fi movie in that normally when you go to a sci-fi movie, it's like a bunch of people on Mars and there's a monster or something like that, <laughs> right? <laughs> this is not that. This is like our world slightly different. Yeah, first of all, thank you, Chris, for finally handing me a title that I had to watch with my parents for scheduling and that wasn't filled with boobs or, and blood. So <laughs> thank it. you. Legitimately, thank you. Okay. Yeah, and it's it's basically our world. The only thing that is different is that they have a new form of computers called quantum computing and that in order to do this, they are constantly having to walk hard lines from... Uh, node to node and so a new little uh, i guess yeah it's a uh, it's a new gig economy has yeah, grown economy. up around people who are literally walking this cable 10 miles through the woods to plug it into another, another node yeah or lo- or much longer yeah like, and like that is that is the only thing science fiction about this movie right and, and that there's like there are little robots that that also are delivering the lines and the deal is the way they try and rip off people slash make them work harder is like basically the robot's trying to do the same node hookup you are and if it beats you because you took too many breaks you don't get paid yeah oh yeah so uh, that's the other thing like a true independent science fiction movie this is obliquely about something this movie is anti-capitalist it is about uh the revolution of the proletariat and um (laughs) And that's actually kind of one of the issues I had with the movie. Like, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I want to throw it out I did, there. too, yeah. And I think that this is the kind of smart, fun science fiction that I wish we saw more of. Um, but it also gets lost in the message that it's trying to tell and forgets to tell a cohesive story. Because there are two or three plot lines that are relatively important to the actual plot that they're trying to tell that they just forget about. And it's not even really that they're setting that for a sequel. They just kind of let go like, look, let's be honest here. We were never really here for that. This is about worker rights. Yeah. I, I, the only reason that I disagree with you here is that I don't, I thought very quickly into this film, like, oh, this is not a movie about a plot. This is a movie about a setting because it is about what the the subtext is the text here. And it's fascinating that like, It just is our world, but with this weird, different thing that's happening during it. And it's talking about our world. It's talking about rideshare driving and shit like that. But 
doing it through this metaphor. But really, the thing that makes this movie hold together as still being so watchable is the major find of the lead actor, uh, the character of Ray, played by Dean Imperial, who's very limited experience. But the dude is like a young James Gandolfini. Okay, thank you, good God. You're like, oh my God, it's like he's been born again into I a new body. I Googled him three times because I was like, this is clearly James Gandolfini's kid. Like, it's, it's not. Gotta be. No, no, no relation. But man, you're like, oh, dude. That you need to be in every mafia film and yes. TV show ever made from now on. Because, and he's not playing a mob guy, but it's a running joke in the film. People are like, yeah, you kind of seem like, you know, like a good fella or something. He's like, yeah, I don't know why everybody's always like, yeah, you're like this good fella guy. He's just a schlubby, out of shape dude. dude. Yeah. He was charming and charismatic. I dug him. Yeah, he's great. Uh, it's worth watching, even if you're not and into the whole subtextual sci-fi I, thing. I will say he's great points for the filmmakers um so it, it ends in a like at the time i first saw it i went "Ugh, that movie just ended and i was a little annoyed with it because I, you're right i do agree that it's about the text but i also think that i'm a firm believer in Chekhov's gun and that mm. if you set something up you need to you need to at least sure. somehow pay it off yeah. but when the movie ended i was like Ugh, i rewind when i kicked on the commentary as the director kind of went look this is what this is about. Like, 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 this is what this scene means and what we're trying to say here. And it made sense. It instantly made the ending better. And then he proceeded to talk through the entire credits about how independent filmmakers need to basically unionize and establish set guidelines of like the way to act and right. uh, treat each other on film sets. And I was like, oh, you're like a good guy. Yeah, he's, he I, is. I want you to make more movies now. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. I, I was like, he's clearly like, I mean, obviously the guy, like it, this type of thing is important to him, which I don't even go so far as to say anti-capitalist as I, tempered <laughs> capitalism because capitalism has gotten totally out of control. Fair. I, I was yeah. being reductive. Right. It, it was, it, it's really just pro-human. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and yeah, I, I thought, found this whole thing kind of charming. And I, I do, I did have the first initial that's it, but largely because I was really enjoying it. Yeah, and I, I kind of wanted it to have. <laughs> oh well, this has an ending. It doesn't because it hasn't yet in our lot world either. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that maybe was kind of the point. That is, it's like it is. it's not going away without you doing something. Well, and, and the 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 ending when you hear the director explain it, the ending is very much like a no. This is a call to action against yeah. the people watching this movie. Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. All right, we're going to move on to a, oh boy, 1989 Italian shark exploitation yeah. drama called Deep Blood with one of the best covers I've got set in a long oh my time. God. Like I was so excited to watch this movie when I saw the cover. Insanely like, lurid. I, I knew like, it was going to be trashy and terrible, yeah. but it was going to at least be fun. It was not. No, it's not. But you can kind of laugh at certain aspects of it in... Not in the way that it's, oh, that's so dumb, it's fun, but or that's so incompetent, it's fun. It's more like, wow, way not to like have any idea how to make a movie yeah. and, and to just blatantly rip off Jaws left, right, and Sort of, kind of, yeah. It rips off Jaws while not at all being a Jaws movie, even. Yeah. Because so the movie follows five friends who went through a bonding experience with a, a white guy trying to be an Indian in the beginning of the movie. And then they grow up and they've become jaded adults when all of a sudden, not Jaws, starts eating people <laughs> um, in not at all bloody scenes. Don't get excited. Yeah, not they, at all. They decide that this is the time that was this is a time that was prophesied about when they were young and they go like dig up their 
their family fun stick that was like symbolized their relationship. I not understand what any of that so was. That they, so basically like so that they can go hunt the shark down. So like it's kind of Jaws, but it's really about these guys who used to be kids but are now adults trying to find their relationship again. I mean, you this say movie, adults. They're, sorry, they're teens. Like college kids now. Th- this movie feels a lot more like Brian Trenchard Smith's Frog Dreaming than it does Jaws. Yeah, but I like Frog Dreaming. Yeah, oh, I did not like this. <laughs> but like, it's, so it's like it's filmed like it's a family movie, but they cuss a lot, and so like it's not quite. It's not at all the cover. It's not a family friendly movie. It's not really exciting. It just kind of exists. Yeah, it's just kind of oh, it's yet another Jaws remake that or a ripoff that got made because God yeah. knows there were a lot of them. Like I was halfway through this movie going. Can I show this to my kid? I think I can technically show this to my kid. I mean, it's really, yeah, mild. Unless you want, you know, I feel like I, I'd be, I'd rather show my kid Jaws, which is really bloody and violent yeah. and scary, than this. Because Agreed. I'm like, I don't want you thinking things that are this banal or worth spending yeah. your time on. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is kind of awful. I'm sorry. I mean, I get it. Everything gets a re-release. You know, there's nothing is nothing is safe from a re-release. And I love the company Severin Films that put this out. They're the guys that, you know what I mean? Sometimes they put out shit like this, and but sometimes they put out shit I just love to pieces. No lie. Go track down the poster and buy it. It's awesome. The poster is amazing. <laughs> I don't know, actually, if this was made for this or not. <laughs> but it's a cheapie. I mean, Severin a lot of times puts lots of extras. There's nothing here but a trailer because what they're like, you this is for people who only like the schlockiest schlock that ever schlocked you know and this is this is one of them uh we'll move on to a more recent film very recent called for with the uh, unfortunately titled for the sake of of vicious which just as like a person who you know likes the english language and writing in it (laughs) immediately is like no (laughs) that that doesn't make sense it doesn't work like this i'll be honest this is an odd film that not everything in it completely odds adds up it it's very non-linear but confusing about how in what order things are happening and yet there's something so unique and by itself about this movie and it's so really violent at points with impressive gore that at the end i'm like i did kind of like it i just feels like it desperately needed to go back in the editing room for a bit of reorganization for me the the front half of this movie was nigh unwatchable Mm. Um, I could not really get into any of the characters or the story. It was just like, what? This makes no sense. Nobody would really act this way. Like, I just, I couldn't get it. Um, and then there's a shift when masked biker gang kind of maybe people just show up and start killing people. Which is, and, and it like no, no reason they just show up, which is to say the plot is simple as it is. This nurse comes home from the Sorry. hospital. Female <laughs> nurse comes in. Uh, there's a guy on the floor unconscious in our house. And then there's another dude in the house who has made that guy unconscious. And there's something going on. That's very unclear for a while. Like, so this guy apparently, did something horrible to this other guy and he's claiming he's a gangster and he's like, I need you. I'm sorry. I broke into your house, nurse lady who I'm not sure how they even know each other really, but like they, I need someone, I need you to be able to wake him up because I just got to get this guy to admit the shit that he did to me. And he wakes up. He's like, this dude's crazy. I didn't ever did shit to him. He's fucking insane. So the nurse is caught in this position. But then in the meantime, 
there's a gang, bike, evil biker gang that, that are hired as thugs by the, the super bad bad guy who we don't even really see till towards the end of the very movie. Kinda. Yeah, and, the, and and that's where the film goes from, like, lightly violent to holy shit violent. And, and once that happens, I really enjoyed it. I thought the violence was well shot. It was gooey in all the right places. It was never really over the top. It mm. worked. That front half was apparently bad enough that I didn't even remember half of that. It's a little rough, yeah. I'm like, okay, I don't really know what's happening. There's a lot of stuff that just doesn't make sense. Well, and, and some of which they explain, but not till the towards the very end. And by then, I'm like, look, at this point, you're just kind of an action revenge film. Thank you. Well, so and so the, I don't care anymore. <laughs> that's the problem, is that they keep revealing connections, uh, which they don't. They don't matter. Yeah. Like who who cares if you were that guy's kid's nurse or if this person owns the company that like processed your mortgage in your last house and it doesn't matter. No. It's not relevant. It's and just the directors a twist don't for seem to care either, which is weird because they do write in all this sort of like <gasps> reveals that yeah. oh, that like i said you just don't give a shit about by the time that they start doing them towards the end of the third it, act it, it like, would have been so much more rewarding had this had a more focus like on the two guys opening and then the bikers were somehow related to that actually yeah like pursuing them and following them that way it could have a thread but as it is it's two completely different movies that kind of mash up together and yeah and the second one's fun second one's fun it's it's really good gore cool action badass shit happens Okay, but if you're into this for the story that it, that is not up to the sum of its parts, then yeah. you might be disappointed. But, I mean, it's fine. I think I would enjoy this more in a theater with an audience, for sure. Because a lot of the kills in here are like, ooh, type yeah. kills. You're like, damn, dude! <laughs> yeah, there, there's a guy who gets a hammer to the face, and it is maybe one of the most uncomfortable gory kills I've seen in a while. It was delightful. So I was really sad that this Paraguayan thriller, horror thriller called Morgue kind of sucked. Because I was excited about this one. I'm like, ooh, a Paraguayan horror film. I, I want to see that. And it kind of had the gloss about what I was seeing of like more of a like Eastern Asian horror film. I was like, okay. And I love spooky ghost stuff. But ultimately, this is one of those films that 10 minutes into it, you're like, okay, I already know exactly what the twist ending is. Fair enough. And, and, so, and it's not very interesting. I mean, it moves fast. It does move fast, yeah. And it... So it follows the main character who's kind of a selfish, douchey, young security guard working at an insane asylum? No, a morgue. Duh. Uh, yeah, sorry. It's, it's called morgue. <laughs> Well, I, I knew there was a morgue. I couldn't remember if it was like there was a broader context for the facility no. he was at. He's just a security guard but, at a morgue. Yeah. And, and like he starts noticing weird shit and about and there, he finds like a random guy sneaking around uh, who he threatens with a gun and who kind of harasses him. And this guy keeps coming back. And so he runs after him intending to confront him. And then lo and behold, gets trapped inside the actual morgue. No guns, no way to defend himself. And then spooky shit starts happening and and yeah and, and there's a thing that happens before he even gets to work that you're like if you even faintly understand the oh, language yeah. of movies and horror you already know what the big reveal oh, yeah, is after that. that happens <laughs> and it does it so ham ham handedly of doing it like there's a reveal very shortly after he gets there of something and you're like 
oh, well, then, clearly it's this, so who cares? And most of the scares just aren't very scary. They're very generic, you know. Uh, I don't know. This I, is all feels like this should have just been a single episode of an anthology. I will say that I, I think I liked it more than you. I, d- I didn't I didn't hate this. Okay. Um, I think that there's a lot of promise here. Like, this is a bad movie. <laughs> I, I'm not necessarily saying that, holy shit, this is great. But I think that the director and the film, the filmmakers, they do a decent job of conveying some really great set piece moments inside that morgue like there are some legitimately scary scenes and moments in there the problem is that they don't really know how to tie it all together and they also let things go on way too long yes like like there's there there are scare set pieces where you could cut 10 fucking minutes out of it and it would play better just like this whole sequence let's just lift these 10 minutes yeah it would work better but, like, the, I feel like there's promise here, is what it is. It's still just, I but, mean, maybe for the guy to go forward and do something else. Oh, this is. Oh, and then, the, sorry, I, I, I'm ahead. interrupting you because that's as far as I will go to praise this movie because for what little kind of positivity I can muster about it. This movie ends in one of the stupidest, worst decisions by a character to ever exist in the history of film. <laughs> like, it it was worse than watching that haunted Zoom call thing where they got back on the Zoom call after they got kicked off. Right, right. Where it's just like, no, nobody would do that. That's not real. This movie is bullshit. It no longer exists for me. I don't know. I just found this you just thoroughly mediocre and like i've seen it before and i've seen it done better and it, it was a waste of my time fair enough i did not care for morgue but we'll finish on a film i did really enjoy uh which is the brand new dc uh animated universe film justice society world war Two. i mean this is shit this shit is totally up my alley for dc stuff yeah. like i'm like justice league is fine I'll take the Justice Society. Thank you very much. <laughs> I haven't really seen any Justice Society stuff before. This is my first real exposure to them other than like season one of Legends of Tomorrow. Mm. Well, uh, it Justice Society of America was a big deal for me, the book, when Jeff John started writing it. And I think it was for a lot of people. We were like, I've never even heard of any of these characters except for the original Green Lantern. Right? Like Alan Scott. Sure. Like who is not has no relation somehow to the other Green Lanterns. (laughs) Totally different. He's magic, they're science. I don't know. But uh, this is definitely not, strictly speaking, any anybody's idea of canon. And in fact, this product (sighs) was the mixture of, if I remember correctly, like three totally different ideas for standalone animated films or series that all just didn't get made and so they just kind of took the scraps and combined them into this idea because it is kind of like a mishmash of shit going on yeah so there are several plot lines to follow um one of them which is unfortunately the like framework one is the only one that i didn't really care for or want so basically the the least of that the, 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 the movie follows the flash as he yet again accidentally travels back in time slash dimensions while trying to stop something from happening and puts himself it's basically a redo of flashpoint but instead of flashpoint he drops into world war ii with the justice society yeah and so like i'm i'm really tired of them using that particular flash plot line because every flash anything on screen i have ever seen 
uses that exact story as yeah. the setup. I mean, not necessarily with the JSA or World War II, but... Yeah. No, no, no. Just, just flash oops, traveling. I traveled yeah. in time. And I'm so tired of that. But once you get into meeting the actual Justice Society and watching him play off the heroes, as at first they think he's possibly a German science hero, and they don't trust him, and he slowly turn, starts to like actually become a member with them, and they work yeah. together, and, and ultimately into I'm, I don't feel like this is too much of a spoiler, but like finding out that that they've hopped dimensions too. Like once they get into that, this was a really good DC animated movie. Mm-hmm. I was with it. Uh, it was just violence enough to feel edgy. It was well, never going so far into gore the way the Justice League Dark movies do that sure. it just doesn't feel right anymore. And it has a giant outer outer uh, uh, deep sea kaiju that comes and attacks yeah. a boardwalk, which I knew right then. I was like, oh, Aaron's just does. added a star to this It's movie. so much fun. Well, I, I enjoy when Aquaman gets to be scary. Yeah. Like it, I I I like when they go back through and they take those disparate communities that exist in the DC world who always just kind of never interact and are like, nah, fuck it, we're going to war. <laughs> There's a lot of fun to be out here, but like I said, it is kind of a mess. It's just a fun mess yeah. more than it's not. The part, the framework that's modern day is who gives a shit, but it's only there to kind of show the relationship between Flash and Superman, which in the historical part is kind of like. I, I mean, it's not super important, but it is a twist. It, it's a, it is one of the only twists that actually legitimately worked on me. Yeah, I was surprised. I was surprised when, too. when they did it, yeah. and then I liked the way they paid it off too, with yeah. showing how he was a different person back then. Like uh, honestly, I think this is a step above the New Fifty Two mm-hmm. DC animated universe that we had for a while. So far, I've. I've mostly been enjoying these standalone weird genre things that they've been putting out yeah. since they shuttered their their collective universe. Agreed. Everything since Man of Tomorrow, I've been like, yeah, yeah, cool. It's I'm been down. a step up considering it ended on the previous one ended on such a terrible oh note. Uh, but the, I mean, it, it, this isn't perfect, but it's a fun little experiment. It's something different. We've never. I don't think it, it's definitely not based on a single comic book. Yeah. So. I was like, great, I have no idea where this is going to go. And it also came with one of my favorites of the DC Showcase shorts that they put out so far, uh, which are the things when they do, oh, well, nobody wants to see a whole movie about the spirit, but we're going to throw this in here. And here, it's Kamandi, The Last Boy on Earth, which yes. is a really obscure Jack Kirby title uh, that I never even read, but I was familiar with existing, that over the years, they've done shit with him, that character here and there, but the idea is like he's the last human and everybody else is sort of like a upright walking and talking animal person, you know, like it's, it's Planet of the Apes, but also yeah. of the crustacean men and of the dog <laughs> people. And, the, and he's the last person and it's totally Kirby and they animate it super Kirby style. It's like, this is fun. I, to be honest, I would completely watch an entire movie and it's only about 18 minutes. But I was like, yeah, that was great. Do more like that. And I, uh, I've always... I really enjoyed the Spectre one, I think. Yeah. Uh, like, the DC animated showcases are are almost the best part about the new releases. They're often Absolutely. better than the actual movie. 
I don't know if they're already on there, but just in case, come on, HBO Max, put them on. <laughs> I'm like, just do a set that's nothing but the... the They've done that. The, yeah, but they, but they only had like, some. It was years ago, yeah, too. Yeah. There have been so many. It was pre-New 52 universe. Yeah. So there's a ton that exists that we don't have any real record of. Uh, this also comes with Adventures in Storytelling for 30 Minutes, which is a roundtable discussion with the five members of the creative team who made this film. And all of them admit that, yes, this is in, during this, like, yeah, this was just kind of slammed together from pieces of other shit that never got made. Um, which is fine, like I said. There's a sneak peek at the next universe movie, which I'm like, ugh, fuck, which is the long Hall- Halloween part one. I, think I was going to say, part one. Yeah, which I'm like, <laughs> I think the story of The Long Halloween is terrible. The thing that makes it readable is not the writing. It's the art. And this is animated, so not the same thing. You can, don't have, I think it was Jim Lee who did the art. I can't remember. I don't remember. But, like, spectacular art. And, you know, it's like Batman versus every major Batman villain. Okay. But it's not a very good story. So I'm like, I'm not really looking forward to this. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Well, and I'm always leery when it's a Batman. I, I'm always going to be more excited for not the Holy Trinity. Yeah, me too. Anyway, that's it for Digital Noise. We covered it all. Woo-woo. We did it we did in it? an hour and one episode. Minutes. Yeah, one episode. Badasses, Aaron and Chris. <laughs> uh, join us soon for more Digital Noise. I know John and I are going to record one early next week as well. So they're going to be like, it's going to be in quick succession. Digital what? Noise is coming out. And I just handed you a smaller than usual stack for your next one. So there'll even be another one yeah. long after that. With Jodorowsky on it. He's trying to break me, people. He's trying <laughs> to break me. Finally, my plan is coming to fruition. The final mind-breaking of Aaron. The whole purpose of my existence. My nemesis. Yeah, I'm not wearing... You didn't know it was me, right? I was really expecting an evil laugh there. <laughs> I, my throat's a little sore, so... Here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.